Today on Pathways to Wellbeing, we welcome IFM Director of Medical Education, Dr. Dan Lukaser, and IFM Director of Medical Education Initiatives, Dr. Robert Luby. Today, we'll focus our conversation on some of the top functional medicine hot topics of 2020 and what they mean for your practice. Time-restricted feeding and intermittent fasting and how those can improve obesity and diabetes and cardiovascular disease and uh, even some kinds of cancers. These uh, conditions that really emerged in 2020 as, as newsworthy also put the patient at the center, which is also a place we need to always be in and go to in functional medicine. Obviously, the COVID-19 pandemic dominated much of the medical news in 2020, and we will discuss some of the important takeaways for functional medicine practitioners from that research. But there were also several exciting themes in functional medicine that we'll explore as well. Doctors Luke Hazer and Luby, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Waddles. So I'd like to kick off our conversation today with a topic that's really been at the front of our minds this year. It was highlighted in detail at our annual international conference, and that's fasting and time-restricted eating. We have some data to show that fasting and uh, even eating following circadian rhythm can have a beneficial health impact. Dr. Lukaser, you and I have talked some about how these health-promoting strategies don't always need to cost extra money, and fasting is certainly one of those. So I'd love to hear from your perspective, how can we utilize fasting and therapeutic fasting in a clinical setting? Great question. I think it uh, can be very simple and it's a complex topic. And I guess the first thing I'd like to say is, you know, the literature often doesn't differentiate when we're talking about fasting because there's uh, there's just as you talked about, uh, Kalia, there's time restricted eating and how I define that. And I think we should be careful with these definitions, because when you look at the literature, they're they're talking about different things. So time restricted eating is uh, basically uh, extending generally an overnight fast. So I think that there is likely no magic number. Um, it's probably 14 to 16 hours, but that is my magic number. I, I, I try to get uh, people when I'm talking about time-restricted eating to a 14-hour um, uh, fast, fasting window, if you will, and therefore a, um, you know, a 10-hour eating window. Um, so that's time-restricted uh, uh, feeding and then there's fasting. To me, fasting, and I think in the literature as well, fasting is 24 hours or longer. Um, and then there's uh, this thing that we call a fasting mimicking diet that uh, Volta Longo et uh, al. have done a great amount of work, which seems to have some similar benefits to a fasting regime. And then there's these other things that are, um, you know, alternative day fasting. Uh, these five, two fasts, et cetera. So um, the simplest thing to start with, I think, is uh, time-restricted feeding. And, and, and so trying to get patients, which is can be very simple of just having them extend their, um, their uh, uh, overnight fast, if you will, for um, uh, 
uh, 14 to 16 hours. And I think there are very good studies, both in animals and humans, as we, uh, we had some great presenters at the annual conference talk about this, um, uh, about uh, um, time-restricted feeding and intermittent fasting and how those can improve obesity and diabetes and cardiovascular disease and uh, even some kinds of cancers. And the question that I think we should be asking, and, the, and there's more research to, to uh, be done in these areas, but what are the benefits? Because I think that's when you get to these different, um, uh, these different ideas about time-restricted feeding and um, intermittent fasting and 24-hour fasting, et cetera. And, and I think they break down into probably um, three or four kind of different benefits. One is we have this metabolic switching in which you're going from a diesel to a gasoline. As I try to talk to patients about, you're going from uh, um, uh, glucose utilization primarily to uh, ketone utilization primarily. And if you do that easier and easier, so you do more of this, I think that metabolic switching happens easier. And we know that there's a lot of benefits of feeding the body with ketones and ketones in fact are our cellular signal. So that's an, an important attribute of, um, of these different regimes. Then there's, um, particularly in cancer therapy, I think there's this idea of uh, stress resistance and um, the, the, the idea that uh, cancer cells, which are fast growing cells, they don't respond to a fast, whereas um, other cells do respond to that fast. And so they shut down a bit. And so when you, it, particularly in chemotherapy, and there's been some studies done with this, that therefore um, you can uh, um, uh, target or chemotherapy can better target cancer cells because they're not shut down if you're doing a fast before chemotherapy. There's good studies in that. The third uh, idea is this uh, word that's been thrown around a great, great deal in the past couple of years is this cellular cleanup or autophagy. Um, and I think that's a very important aspect. Uh, probably um, have, well, it's hard to say if it has to do with those other two, but it seems to be a third specific way that uh, fasting works. And, and then the fourth is um, weight loss. There seems to be some good studies that suggest that individuals who are doing some of these fasting time-restricted feeding approaches um, do have a pretty significant weight loss if you look at them as a group. And that doesn't mean that everybody's going to get weight loss, but uh, in my clinical experience, there is some weight loss just by doing uh, time-restricted feeding. So it's hard to say whether I've answered your question, but I've had a good, um, I've had a lot of fun just going over what we're talking about. And, and really the, the field has exploded in the past couple of years around, around these concepts. 
Well, I think you certainly answered the question. And I love that you also brought up this concept of metabolic flexibility, which I think is somewhat of a buzz term right now. People want to know how they can become more metabolically flexible. Uh, before we move on from this topic, you mentioned all of the various types of fasting that one can do. And sometimes when I'm talking to patients about fasting and they want to know which strategy is right for me, I, I kind of feel like it's just the one that they'll do, the one that's realistic for them and the one that they will actually follow through with. Is that how you approach choosing a strategy as well? Or do you have some further insight into how you select the right path? I think that's a great way to perceive, uh, proceed. I almost invariably start with the time-restricted feeding because I think it's the easiest. And then I do think that um, actually longer fast, a 24-hour fast, or a, um, or a three-day fast, if you can get uh, individuals to do that, probably has some other benefits because when we talk about uh, ketosis, uh, um, there is, you're, you're not generally getting into nutritional ketosis. Um, if you just do a long overnight fast, you usually have to go to 24 to 48 hours to actually get into you know, 0.5 to 1.5 millimoles of ketones. So uh, again, directly answering your question, I think that's a great way to start, Kalia, is what will they do? And what they will generally uh, do, if depending on how you're framing it, of course, is, um, is it's, it's not that hard to do time-restricted feeding in my experience. And in fact, it's not that hard after you've done that for a while to actually do a 24 hour fast, if you go from sundown to sundown at that 24 hours, what, what gets a little more challenging I think for people is actually going 36 hours because then you're, um, you're actually going a full day and night obviously without eating. And, and that's, a, that's a little bit of a stretch and you have to work up to that. And before we move away from this, Kalia too, a few other things to feature here are uh, the time-restricted eating is so amenable to the functional medicine approach, you know, the go-to it. It really fits nicely into the order and prioritize step because you can, you can do it so many different ways that it fits a lot of patient lifestyles and preferences, which we're trying to take into account in that order and prioritize step. And we alluded to it at the beginning also, but uh, it's very affordable. This is something where you don't need any special classes or you know anything to do this. In fact, it might even take some some change off of your uh, food bill as well. Uh, in addition to that, it's it's very much uh, forgiving. You know, if, when we talk about an elimination diet, it's 30 days. You really got to stick to it 100% if you want to get the the uh, identify the the offending foods right. And uh, not so with the uh, uh, time restricted eating. Uh, you know, you, you can do it some days of the week and not others, you know, the more you do of it, probably the better. And even the, the, you know, the biological evolutionary experiment of human beings throughout the ages is that they were unpredictably intermittently forced to do time restricted feeding. And uh, so in that sense, it's a very forgiving regimen where uh, patients can get off the wagon, so to speak, but get right back on and not, not, uh, not, not get upset by it. And it's also amenable to the collaborative care team approach with coaches and to shared medical appointments. Uh, patients engaging in shared medical appointments can really uh, help each other out with this kind of approach. That's another advantage 
for the time restricted eating. And I think some of the things that will be exciting for the future are things like, well, when's the optimal timing for an exercise regimen during the time restricted eating interval in order to get the most metabolic benefit? And are there subtypes of patients who benefit more uh, or who you know, will do better with a longer uh, restriction versus is there some kind of a, a patient uh, cluster who does, who does just as well with a shorter time restricted feeding? And then with devices, wearable devices and tracking devices, you know, if once we start getting real time data from time restricted eating, we might be able to really pinpoint subtypes and individualize just how long an individual needs to be on time-restricted eating uh, based on data from their wearable device. So I think those are things to watch for uh, going into the future. Yeah, I just, I just wanna add, Robert, you, you're making a great point uh, in two ways. Uh, one, it's such an easy way to start and doing it five out of seven days, I think, uh, I know you still get benefits uh, from the literature. So that's a great point. And then the other point that you brought up of using these wearables, I've uh, tried to, when I can encourage uh, people to uh, get a wearable and how, uh, how that can uh, have your, uh, obviously this uh, biohacking of yourself. And so you're looking at your sleep and there's some, you know, like the aura ring is a great way to, um, uh, track your sleep and looking at how you're eating, obviously eating later in the day uh, or into the evening can have a, a significant effect on um, uh, uh, REM sleep and deep sleep. So you can, it's, it's very useful to kind of biohack and, and putting those things together. And then of course, the hanger that it all in induces is a great prompt to get into a good mindfulness practice as well. <laughs> Indeed. Well, thank you both for bringing up the wearables. Um, I asked for a continuous glucose monitor for my birthday this year. So that really just fueled my fire. Uh, before we move on from talking about ketosis, I want to link this to our next topic. Everybody wants to know about COVID. That's been the theme of 2020. We know that nutritional ketosis, you know, it may be helpful in terms of insulin resistance or metabolic syndrome, these comorbidities that appear to increase severity of COVID-19 infection. So from your perspective, can therapeutic fasting act as a preventive strategy to either prevent viral illness or at least lessen the severity of disease? Do you have any inclinations about that? Well, I think we, I mean, uh, the you know the old adage of uh, um, starving a starving a fever, I think comes into play, and I think there is something to the uh, immune response and uh, nutritional ketosis, a and probably therapeutic fasting as well in terms of uh, stress response as well. So I I do think that there is. Um, some research that has come out that has suggested that there are connections there. I can't say that uh, I have used this um, specifically for uh, immune support in terms of um, uh, nutritional ketosis. I'm usually using it uh, around insulin resistance and hyperinsulinemia and uh, um, uh, blood sugar issues. 
you know, with time restricted eating, I think we, we don't have great data. I don't know if there's any data out there in terms of in the acute phase of, of COVID infection or even preemptively. But if, if we look at it from the reverse angle, you know, we know from animal studies and human studies that overfeeding is certainly pro-inflammatory. The comorbid conditions of severe infection in COVID are pro-inflammatory conditions in large part and or immunosuppressive conditions. So to the extent that overfeeding we know is, is going to have that kind of a detrimental effect on the immune system, one would have to think that time-restricted eating in, in, in the preemptive phase of COVID uh, has a good uh, good plausibility for being beneficial for reducing the, you know, the mit or mit mitigating the chance of severe infection should you become exposed, because you'd naturally not be in a pro-inflammatory state. So I think that's one kind of an extrapolation we could safely make in the acute phase. Once you've been exposed, I, I just don't know that we have any data and much tougher to predict uh, what what kind of an effect that would have. All right, well, we'll stay tuned as I'm sure that this is a, a hot topic and we'll get some more data about this in the coming year or so, I would suspect. As we're talking about comorbidities and things that may increase severity of SARS-CoV-2 infection, we saw some evidence this year regarding lifestyle interventions for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and this could potentially be one of those comorbidities. Lifestyle treatment, uh, particularly that that results in weight loss, appears to significantly improve fatty liver, liver injury, liver fibrosis. I'm constantly talking to patients about those personalized modifiable lifestyle factors on our functional medicine matrix, the bottom of the matrix, as we say. And it seems that optimizing these factors, especially in terms of nutrition, uh, and uh, Dr. Luby, you talked about overfeeding, this can make a big difference in terms of liver health. And so I'm hoping you can talk about some, some key takeaways from how we might approach uh, liver health from a functional medicine perspective. Right, now this is, this is a really intriguing question. And uh, there's, there's two uh, phenomena that have been observed that, um, that are confounding the way I think about this somewhat, is that uh, liver disease is not the most uh, important factor of all the organ-based diseases, as we say in terms of determining uh, uh, vulnerability to, to severe COVID infection. You know, cardiovascular diseases, renal diseases are actually more influential than liver diseases. And yet we know that this um, non-alcoholic uh, steatohepatitis or NAFLD, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease as it's been called, <coughs> excuse me, um, do, are, they are more, um, associated with visceral adiposity as opposed to uh, BMI per se in terms of their outcomes. And the same seems to be true of COVID that visceral, visceral adiposity, there's some data now that that is a, a risk factor. So it strikes me that uh, I think we're gonna see more emerge here in that um, NASH, NAFLD in, their, in the way that they contribute to visceral adiposity should be more of a risk for severe COVID infection. I think we'll see more in 2021 as the data plays out and or in the chronic COVID syndrome. We might see uh, the case where these chronic liver diseases are more influential and therefore uh, fasting and, and uh, restricted feeding strategies may be more beneficial. What I think is just so uh, uh, positive in terms of the whole functional medicine approach to chronic diseases in general is that 
the world is waking up, the, the medical world, the clinical world, and the, the world of the public is waking up to the importance of addressing uh, lifestyle factors to mitigate chronic disease before you get exposed to COVID. It's, you know, the, the change in nomenclature of NAFLD, this was a fatty liver disease, and now it's not a disease anymore, even in terms of the terminology, you know, we're getting away from that and realizing it's a metabolic issue. It's a metabolic issue. So I, what I love about this is, you know, years back before I joined IFM, when I was teaching the residents, I would say to them, NAFLD is not a disease, it's an effect. It's an effect of other things. It's not a liver problem. The liver is just the bystander that's getting affected by the other physiological problems. And, uh, you know, they looked at me quizzically then because they didn't have the background in systems biology until they've been with me for a few years. But this is really accelerating the acceptance of systems biology in the conventional medicine world, which is so exciting that we start to see, you know, the conventional clinicians starting to talk about metabolic susceptibility. I mean, it's just music to our ears. And I think it's going to be um, uh, really bode well for you know, collaborations and, and getting our camps together, so to speak. So I'm really excited about that aspect of it too. Uh, hopefully the, the pandemic winds down before we're able to do that, but uh, hopefully the, the effects linger and uh, the collaboration continues. Side effect, the side effects linger. I, I would uh, just add that this is, uh, you know, to your point, Robert, I think that there were uh, certainly uh, discussions of these two decades ago, because I remember uh, Jeff Bland talking about this in Functional Medicine Update and lecturing about it. And so this is uh, not a uh, completely new concept, but just in 2020, I know that there are a number of studies that uh, um, you know, systematic reviews and, and some larger uh, evaluations that continue to um, clarify the relationship between visceral adiposity, uh, insulin resistance, and hyperinsulinemia with the NAL uh, non-alcoholic uh, fatty liver disease. And, and so I think that's um, gratifying that it's, you know, it's moving something that Jeff Bland was talking about two decades ago is moving in much more into the mainstream. And we, we all see this all the time of you, know, you see uh, slightly elevated LFTs or it's easy enough to get an ultrasound and, um, and it is of course rampant. We know all of that and, and one very, I think, uh, uh, useful fact, if you will, to uh, clarify with patients is you just, they just need to lose. Now it's, it's the proper kind of weight loss, but a weight loss of five to 10% of body weight. So if you weigh 250 pounds, um, you know, 20 to 25 pounds of weight loss, which is not nothing, but it's not, we're not asking somebody to go from uh, necessarily a BMI of uh, 38 to a BMI of 22 before they get results. They can have a, still be overweight, but have a significant effect on uh, hyperinsulinemia that then of course has a significant effect on 
uh, triglycerides, which then, of course, has a significant effect on fatty liver. So it's uh, it's not something that you have to say uh, you have to um, get this huge weight loss. And, and weight loss is not the be all and the end all of this particular issue, but it's an important marker that you can uh, point to with a patient of, of kind of clarifying what, what, what uh, is likely to um, get results in that way. All right. Well, speaking of things that are satisfying, it's so nice, like you said, how we saw what Jeff Bland was proposing 20 years ago becoming more mainstream. And from what I've seen in the literature about uh, fatty liver disease is that the main dietary interventions are reduce saturated fat, reduce refined carbohydrate, increase plant-based foods. And that's what we want for most people anyway. So that feels really satisfying that that's becoming more of a, a mainstream recommendation. And all three of these areas that we spoke of today also put the patient at the center because you know, the medical magic bullets just aren't there yet for any of these. And it really does require the patient uh, to to make some changes and for the, the clinician to really uh, facilitate that, bring in the collaborative care team. So uh, these, these uh, conditions that really emerged in 2020 as, as newsworthy also put the patient at the center, which is also a place we need to always be in and go to in functional medicine. Yeah, that's the perfect lead in to my next question. Speaking of patients being at the center is the functional medicine matrix. And IFM has done a great job over the last year of really highlighting how specific nodes of the matrix can contribute to COVID infection risk and disease severity, and how we can really do whole person healthcare to keep people safe. I'm hoping we can talk a little bit about the relationship between lifestyle and chronic disease and the increased risk uh, for severe COVID infection. I'd love to just get your general thoughts on this topic if you have any insights you wanted to highlight. Well, if we take a tour around the matrix, if we make a few stops, uh, certainly in the assimilation node and with gut function and the, the importance of the microbiome in modulating inflammation and in modulating the function of the immune system, uh, I think we can really uh, infer that the health of the gut, the health of the, the microbiome is uh, critical in also mitigating the vulnerability to severe COVID infection. Um, studies will probably, you know, emerge later in, in next year on that, I hope, and uh, we just don't have that kind of data now, but it, with this chronic COVID syndrome that we're now seeing emerge, it's difficult to imagine that addressing the gut will not be a cornerstone of addressing chronic COVID syndrome. We're anticipating that with the, the continuation of our uh, pandemic uh, resistance, resilience, and recovery course as well with the the webinars that we'll be holding uh, in January through June. Uh, if we visit, uh, say, the biotransformation and elimination node, uh, you know, with, with what we already know of how toxins and uh, the, the uh, biotransformation of toxins, both endotoxins and, and exogenous toxins, the effects of those on the immune system, uh, very plausible that that will have an effect on the, uh, the uh, probability or the vulnerability of getting severe COVID infection if exposed. And there's certainly all kinds of uh, emerging lines of evidence that mitochondrial health over there in the bioenergetics node is going to be very important as uh, the 
effects of, of COVID-19 on the mitochondria and how it gets involved in the uh, pathophysiology is going to be very important. And it seems with the, the fatigue that we're seeing in the chronic COVID syndrome patients that that is going to be an issue to address in uh, post-COVID survivors. So I've touched on some of the nodes of the matrix. I'll stop here and, and see if uh, Dan has some other areas to touch on as well. I think you did a great job. I, I would uh, add just a couple of thoughts. One is um, you know, directed towards the idea of, well, what can you do to prevent COVID-19 in patients that you're seeing, or what, what, what can you counsel them at? And certainly physical distancing, hand-washing, all of those things are uh, incredibly important. But as you're talking about this, Robert, uh, just as important, uh, I think, is uh, increasing uh, the innate immune response and decreasing these comorbidities. And the comorbidities that we, that we know are well related to the severity of COVID-19 are cardiovascular disease, chronic kidney disease, diabetes, hypertension. That's a lot of people. And that's, uh, that's a good place to start with talking about how can you uh, decrease uh, those kinds of things that increase your risk. And then the, uh, and I think that's a, a hopeful thing uh, to, uh, to talk to patients about. And then the somewhat depressing thing is what you talked about, Robert, in these long haulers. And there's been studies that suggest um, that that may be uh, as many as 10% of individuals who get infections. So if you're looking at the United States right now, long haulers, if there's, well, there's somewhere around 15 million people who have uh, developed a COVID-19 infection. So we may be talking about a, you know, a million or 2 million people right now that, um, that have this quote unquote long haul syndrome which is uh, just the chronic manifestations uh, that we don't completely understand of, uh, of um, uh, COVID-19 or, or the, uh, what's left over the, after the damage from that virus. So there's, uh, there's a lot of people that I think are going to need a functional medicine um, systems biology approach who who are not ha, have not completely recovered from COVID-19. And I think we have to even multiply, it's a great point you make, Dan, multiply the absolute number of those who will develop chronic COVID syndrome by uh, those around them. We, you know, we, we are a systems biology-based uh, approach to the patient, but the patient is in a system, a family system or a community system and you know, with, with this number, these millions that Dan talked about, we've got how many caregivers does that affect? How many children does that affect whose parents are not now well? You know, how many incomes are gonna suffer and, and, and on and on. So as functional medicine clinicians, we have to address the entire family system as well as the entire physiological system. And to return to the matrix for just a moment, both in um, preemptive COVID, you know, before exposure, uh, and in the chronic COVID syndrome, you know, if we visit the base of the matrix, the modifiable lifestyle factors, you know, we know the effect of optimal sleep on uh, the immune system and, and suboptimal sleep, you know, and how detrimental that can be. 
how, how positive exercise can be for immune system function when done in moderation. Nutrition we've already touched on. And of course we know stress and the effects that it has on the immune system. And even all the, the data on loneliness and with the isolation that so many of us are experiencing. So, you know, the, the lifestyle factors at the base of the matrix are so important preemptively before you're exposed to the virus. And I think they will be just as important as influential in correcting physiology and uh, assisting recovery in the post-COVID syndrome. Yeah, and on that note, IFM has curated a really important list of lifestyle practices and nutraceuticals and botanicals that can be used to support patients who have SARS-CoV-2 infection. Can you highlight how our clinicians who are listening might use those tools to support their patients? Yeah, there's been a published paper come out of that. We've developed some wonderful tables and charts with uh, citations and strength of evidence of botanical and nutraceutical agents that can be adjunctive to whatever the, uh, the guidelines or uh, best practices and recommendations are uh, in conventional medicine. So those are resources that are available. We also have a, a, an online course, a six hour course, uh, which, uh, for which you can register on the uh, website to be followed up with a six month course uh, to follow in on the latest emerging evidence in order to address patients with chronic COVID syndrome. So there's a lot of resources that all of our clinicians can access to help all phases uh, before you're exposed to the virus in the early, you know, first week or two of mild to moderate symptoms in the hopes of mitigating or uh, preventing the progression to uh, severe infection. And then as we learn more, and gather the data on the chronic COVID syndrome, we will be adding resources as well to help, the, help our clinicians out so that they know how to best address the chronic COVID syndrome survivors. Well, I have to say thank you so much to both of you for being here today to discuss really some of the most exciting research that we've seen in 2020. And it's so encouraging that despite a global pandemic, the power of functional medicine continues to emerge in the evidence. So thank you both for being on the show today. Thanks, Claudia. Thank you very much. To join the conversation on this topic, visit IFM's pages on Facebook and Instagram. For more information about functional medicine, visit ifm.org.